What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. a view of God who's someone who's just sitting on his throne, uh, just waiting to condemn people of their sins, that, you know, God takes great pleasure in condemning people, that he loves to condemn people, and he just can't wait to condemn them for their sin. And, you know, this view of God has caused many people who follow God to also think that one of their roles on this earth is to condemn people of their sin. And, and the way that they actually do that makes you think that they really enjoy it, uh, that they really love to bring that condemnation against others. But the question is, is this true about God? Does God take pleasure in condemning sinners? Does God enjoy and love doing that? And is this true about followers of God? Does God want his followers to go around condemning the world who is in sin and to take pleasure in that condemnation? Well, the answer to these two questions is clearly seen in the story that we're going to be looking at this morning at the beginning of John chapter 8. In this story, we have three main characters. First, we have a woman who was caught in adultery, a woman who is deserving of condemnation. Second, we have religious leaders who love to condemn people like this woman caught in adultery. And third, we have Jesus. And Jesus is going to show us God's heart and God's role with regard to how God feels and what God does towards condemning sinners. Now, this encounter that Jesus has with this woman caught in adultery is going to clearly answer the question, does God take pleasure in and does God love to condemn sinful people? And let me start by giving you a little spoiler. The answer is no. God does not take pleasure in condemning sinners. He does not love to condemn sinners. And because of this encounter that Jesus has with this woman caught in adultery, you know, this is an encounter that brings encouragement to us because each one of us are sinful. And each one of us, I'm sure, would love for Jesus to treat us the way that he treats this woman. Now, also, this encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders is one of a challenge. A challenge to us that we would respond to people who are in sin like Jesus does and not like the religious leaders do. And a challenge that's going to answer the question, does God want his followers to go around condemning the world of their sin? Does God want his followers to take joy in bringing condemnation to others? And once again, a spoiler, the answer is no. So in these verses this morning, we're going to learn two very important things. First, what God's heart is and what God's role is when it comes to condemning sinners. And second, what our heart should be and what our role is when it comes to condemning sinners. 
Knowing both of these things is so important if we are going to engage and reach a sinful world the way that God wants us to do it. Now, last week we ended with the religious leaders trying to arrest Jesus. Remember, Jesus is sharing there on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The religious leaders send officers to arrest Jesus. And when the officers get to Jesus, they hear Jesus teach. They hear what Jesus proclaims. And they're so moved by that, they choose not to arrest him. They actually say, no man ever spoke like this man. Uh, they're, they're listening to him. They're blown away by him. And they're saying, Jesus does not deserve to be arrested. And so they go back to the religious leaders empty-handed. And boy, the religious leaders are upset. They wanted Jesus arrested. Now Jesus is still free to speak to the people. And that's where we end chapter 7. With the religious leaders upset, the feast ending, people going home to their houses. And in chapter 8, verse 1, which we read last week, we have Jesus going up to the Mount of Olives. And so now we pick up this new story here, which is the next day. Uh, and we're going to see what happens with this situation with our three main characters of this woman caught in adultery, the religious leaders, and Jesus. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, it says this. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus goes away to the Mount of Olives, spends the night there. Everyone else goes to their home, spends the night there. In the morning, Jesus comes back to the temple. And as he gets there early in the morning, this crowd of people starts gathering in the temple. They come to Jesus, and Jesus starts to teach them. And so just kind of picture the scene as Jesus so often does. He's there at the temple. He's teaching this crowd. And during this time of teaching, there's quite an interruption that transpires. We're told that the religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus. And this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And they asked Jesus, now Moses in the law commanded us that such to be stoned, but what do you say? So try to picture to this scene. You know, I mean, here's Jesus teaching. Imagine just, you know, in our setting now, you know, I'm teaching you and, and what it would be like if this group of guys brings in this woman and pretty much probably grab her and drag her kicking and screaming. Because I, I want you to kind of picture the scene here. They've said that they've caught this woman in the very act of adultery. So first of all, this woman probably isn't wearing anything except maybe a bed sheet or something like that to try and cover herself. She desperately does not want to be here. You know, this is the last place she would want to be in front of this huge crowd, the shame and the reality of what they're bringing, you know, uh, her and the accusation that they're putting against her. So I'm sure that she's probably kicking and screaming and doing her best to get away. And these men are just dragging her to Jesus. And imagine right now if that transpired and what an interruption that would be and that all eyes would be on this woman on these men and what's about to happen and that's the whole point 
That's the very purpose of what these religious leaders did, why they did it. There was no need to bring this woman if the, the question that they asked was really sincere and they just wanted to know, hey, what should we do with this woman? But that wasn't their purpose at all. They want to make a big scene and they want to put Jesus on the spot in front of this huge crowd and they're doing a very good job of it because all eyes would now be on this circumstance right now and Jesus would no longer be able to continue teaching until this is dealt with. And so they asked Jesus, first they make a statement. Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now, I want you to realize that they're not really asking Jesus, like, or just coming to inform him. Hey, we just want you to know we caught this woman in adultery, and we just want you to know what the law says. See you later. You know, they're not trying just to come inform him. They want to have an answer from him. What do you say should happen to this woman? Now, I think it's important to note that the statement Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned is a true statement. Leviticus 20.10 says this, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22 tells us how they should be put to death through stoning. So the Old Testament clearly said this is a crime worthy of capital punishment. There were three main crimes that the Jews looked at as pretty much the most heinous crimes of all. Idolatry, number one, murder, and adultery. They were all punishable by death, according to the law of God. Okay, And they should be stoned with it. So when they come and they say, hey, the law says this woman who we caught in adultery should be stoned, that's true. That is what the law said. But they don't really care what the law says. They want to ask Jesus, but Jesus, what do you say? What do you think should happen to this woman? And I want you to note verse 8, because we're told something about the reason why they asked this question, the reason why they've made this big scene in the way that they have. We're given some insight. They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. See, this whole situation is a complete setup. They're trying to get Jesus in a situation where it's a catch-22, that no matter what he says, he's in trouble. No matter what his answer is to the, the situation and the question that they pose, what should we do to this woman caught in adultery? They realize, you know what? He's going to be in trouble. You see, if Jesus says, you know what? Yes, according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. Right away, they would have accused Jesus of inciting the Jews to go against Roman law. Because the Romans who occupy and uh, have overthrown the Jews, guess what they've done? They have removed capital punishment from the Jews. The Romans were the only ones who could kill someone uh, for a crime. That is why when they wanted to kill Jesus, what did they have to do? They had to take Jesus before Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, and ultimately have him execute Jesus because they didn't have the right under Roman law to do it. And so if Jesus says, yes, stone her, Oh, great. We'll accuse him of going against the Roman law and we'll let Rome deal with Jesus. So he'll be in trouble if he does that. Okay, but what if he says, don't stone her? Well, even better. Now he's going against the law of Moses, the law of God. And then we could just accuse him of teaching things that go against the law. And so they think no matter what he says, he's got a problem. He's in a catch-22. There's no good answer to this question. And that's the whole point. They brought this to test him so that they might have something to accuse him of. And that's why they made this big scene. It's all about trying to get Jesus in this situation where they can accuse him and destroy his influence over 
the people. Now remember the day before this, they tried to arrest Jesus. That didn't work out. Officers come back, they don't do it. So now it's like, all right, plan B. What are we going to do to shut Jesus up? What are we going to do to stop him from doing it? Well, here's plan B. Let's get this woman caught in adultery and ultimately bring her to Jesus and try to get him into this situation where he can't answer the question without having some kind of issue. But I want you to think about this. The woman, we're told, is caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is not something that would be easy to be done. Actually, it was a very rare occurrence that anyone would be caught in adultery. Why? Because it's a private sin that takes place behind closed doors that people aren't aware of except the two people who are committing the sin together. So it's not some easy thing. How did they know this? I mean, did they send out little Pharisee spies looking into people's windows or their bedroom windows trying to find out who's committing adultery and who's not? I mean, how would they know this happened? How did they catch this woman doing this? Seems very hard that that would transpire, unless perhaps they came up with their own plan. Unless perhaps they sent their own man in there to a woman that they were pretty sure, you know what, this woman, we know her reputation. We know that she would be likely, if we sent this guy to, you know, kind of woo her, that she'd be willing to sleep with him. And we could kind of set this up so that we now have this situation. We got our inside guy. We know when it's going to happen. We know when to barge into this bedroom and catch this woman in the act. Because notice something very important. There's a very glaring reality here. Someone's missing. It takes two to tango. He was caught. She was caught in the very act. Well, guess what? She wasn't committing adultery by herself. There would have been a man there with her. Where is he? He's just as guilty. Why haven't they brought the man? Why isn't the man with her? Which leads to the question of, you know, maybe this was someone that the Pharisees planted in there. Maybe it was, some, hey, this is our guy. We're not going to bring him. You know, he's part of our whole plan. We're just bringing the woman to do this. Notice they could care less about this woman, care less about what they put her through. You know, she's just a pawn in their scheme to destroy Jesus. And they don't care if they destroy her in the process. So here Jesus is before this huge crowd and faced with this difficult question. And the religious leaders think, man, we got Jesus now. No matter what he says, yes, you should stone her. No, you shouldn't. We can bring accusations against him. We can, you know, destroy his reputation, destroy his influence with the crowd. You know, this is just perfect. But notice how Jesus responds. We're told that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So instead of answering their question, you know, they, they bring this, you know, so what do you think we should do, Jesus? He just kind of ignores them and he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger like he never heard the question to begin with. And I can imagine this just infuriated the religious leaders. They think, hey, we finally got him. All we got to do is get him to answer this question. And no matter what he says, he's in trouble, but he won't answer. He's pretending like he didn't hear us. And so now, you know, this would just make them so mad because the one thing we can't have is Jesus being silent because he's got to say something so that we can accuse him. So let's see how they respond to Jesus's silence in verses seven through nine. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
So the religious leaders ask Jesus what he thinks should happen to this woman who's been caught in adultery, and Jesus doesn't answer them. And so how do they respond? They continue to ask him over and over again. What do you think, Jesus? Come on, you can't be silent on this. Tell the crowd, you know, what is your opinion of this? What should we do to this woman? They just keep going on and on. And so finally, Jesus stands back up, stops writing in the dirt, looks them, and he says to them, he who is without sin among you, let, a thro- let him throw a stone at her first. And then Jesus stoops back down and starts writing again in the dirt. Now, the religious leaders told Jesus the law commanded that the woman in adultery should be stoned, which was very true. But you know what? The law also says something very important about witnesses who see a sinful act like adultery. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 and 7 says this, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now notice here what we're told here. When someone has committed a sin that is worthy of capital punishment, worthy of death, like adultery, like murder, like idolatry, the only way that you could be convicted and found guilty of that is if there was at least two witnesses. If only one person said, I saw them committing adultery, or I saw them murder someone, or I saw them doing idolatry, not good enough. There had to be at least two witnesses to a crime for someone to be put to death over it. Okay? So that's one thing that we see here, at least two witnesses. But you know what? The religious leaders got several of them coming there, so, so they got that covered. But notice the other thing that's required of the witness when it comes to capital punishment. We're told the hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hands of all the people. Now notice the way in which they executed people at this time was through stoning. And so what this is saying is the person who has witnessed this crime and who has testified against this individual, when we stone them, the very first people who throw those stones are the witnesses. Now imagine this, and the significance of this, and this was partly to make sure no one's going to be bearing false witness. No one's just going to be claiming that because not only are you sentencing someone to death for someone that they didn't do, but guess what? You're the one who's going to kill them as well. You're going to be the first ones to throw a stone at them. And so imagine that, that you you better be true in what you're saying. This better be real. This better be right. And so this was the reality. This is what the witnesses had to do. They were the first ones to throw the stones, and then the rest of the group would throw stones until that person was killed. And so keep that in mind because notice what we're told about the religious leaders. We're told that, hey, they caught this woman, this woman in the very act. So, hey, they are guilty or they are the, the witnesses and have seen this stuff. And so according to the law, as they bring this accusation, not only are they the witnesses who are accusing this woman, but they should be the first ones to throw stones. So Jesus, he responds to them. And notice that they are asking Jesus to respond to this woman's sin. But Jesus doesn't respond to the woman's sin. He responds to their sin. Notice what he says. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Jesus, what should we do with this woman in sin? You know what? You guys, he who is without sin among you, Go ahead, do what the law says. The law says you're the ones the first to throw the, sin, the, throw the stone. So if you're without sin, go ahead, cast that stone first. 
The religious leaders brought this woman trying to trap Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus uses this situation once again to point out the sin of the religious leaders. But notice what Jesus does right after he makes this statement. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. It's kind of interesting. This is the only time we have a record of Jesus writing anything. Obviously, Jesus, you know, growing up, learning how to write, he would have written things. We don't have any record of him doing it. It's the only time as he writes on the ground. And so it leads everyone who reads this passage to pretty much ask the same question. What did Jesus write? Well, we're not told specifically what he wrote. But I do want to say this. The way that John words this in the Greek actually gives us a general idea of what Jesus wrote. You see, the Greek word usually translated wrote is grapho. It's where we get our English word graphic. But John adds a prefix to this word here, which is kata, which means against or in opposition to. Now, when the Greek word and the prefix are put together as John does it, it means to write something against another. And so what John is not just saying is that Jesus just started doodling on the ground. He was just kind of making shapes. No, no, he is writing something specifically against these religious leaders who have brought this accusation against this woman. Now, we're not told what that, you know, what he was writing against them, but, you know, there are some different thoughts. Um, but, you know, the first thing I, I want you to, to take note of here is I believe what Jesus is doing right here is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah 17, 13, which says this. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, this prophecy fits very well with the circumstances that we have just seen. Remember in the last chapter, just one day before this, Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles in the final day, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, the religious leaders don't accept Jesus' invitation. They don't believe in who Jesus is. And so they would definitely be under the category of those that have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water, the one who just declared, that's what I offer. And Jeremiah tells us that those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. And here the next day, literally Jesus writing about them in the earth. It's very possible that what Jesus did here is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, 13. But it's also possible that Jesus wrote something very specific about these guys' sins. You see, he says, He who is out sin among you, let him throw in a stone at her first. And it's possible that Jesus starts with the oldest religious leader who was there and starts writing a sin about him. And then he moves to the second oldest and the third oldest and the fourth oldest. And you say, well, why would you think that? Well, Notice what we're told in verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Notice we're told that these religious leaders, they leave one by one. Now, they all came in a group, and you would think that they would all leave in a group, but no, they don't. And notice the order in which they leave. The very oldest goes first, all the way down to the very youngest. And notice the reason why they're leaving. It's not just because, you know, okay, it's time to go. I want to get home for dinner. No, they're leaving because they're convicted by their conscience because of their sin. Well, what brought that conviction? What was it that caused them to get to this point, each one from order to youngest, oldest to youngest, that they would start departing? 
This is where it's very possible that what Jesus is writing against them starts with this guy's name, who's the oldest, and here are some sins that he's committed, and all of a sudden he sees that, he's convicted, and he walks away. And then the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy. Now, we're not sure if Jesus did specifically write their sins in the dirt, but we do know this. They were convicted of their sin. And that is what caused them to walk away from this woman and their desire to convict her and see her stoned. Well, this brings up an important principle for us. When you see someone else before you and you're going to address that person's sin, something very important to remember is that you are also a sinner. And the fact that you are a sinner should impact how you approach this person. You should come to this person in humility. You should come to this person with understanding. Why? Because you're a sinner just like them. You should come humble before them, not with pride, not with the superior mindset of, I'm so much better than you, I would never commit that sin. You know, like, I'm the, the sinless one and you're the horrible sinner, which is just not reality. See, the religious leaders, that was their issue so much. They thought they were better. They thought they were more superior, definitely than this woman caught in adultery. I can just imagine their view of her and their look and, and their, you know, despising of her. And then they approach with this arrogance. They approach her with this, you know, view of superiority to bring condemnation. But you know what? When they recognize their own sin, they walk away. When they are confronted with their own sin, that, hey, wait a second, you know, I got issues as well. It really changes their approach. It really changes how they come at this woman. You see, if you have a prideful heart, you think you're superior to everyone else, you want to condemn everyone for their sin, you need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize you're not better than them. And just because they sin with a sin that you don't sin with, guess what? You probably sin in an area that they don't sin at. But the reality is we're, we're all sinners. And we need to come with that reality. Because until you see your own sin, you're never going to approach other sinners the right way with the right heart. So Jesus says, hey, whoever's without sin among you, Throw a stone at her first. But here's something that Jesus is not saying, and some people have concluded something wrong through this. Jesus is not saying that you are never to bring up someone else's sin. You're never to address someone else's sin. Only sinless people can do that. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. We have many instances where Jesus himself speaks about what we should do when someone comes and sins against us, that we're specifically supposed to go to them to address that sin. He tells us how we should do that. He tells us why we should do that. So he's not making a statement that we should never, ever bring up a sin that someone else does or try to help them through that or try to you know confront them with that. But we do need to recognize why. Well, why are we doing this? Is it just to condemn them? Is it to see them be judged? Is it to see them be, you know, destroyed and hurt because we're angry? Well, if that's the motivation, then you have the wrong one. If that's the reason, then you're not going to approach it biblically. No, we should come because we want to see repentance. We want to see restoration because we love that person. We see that the sin is hurting our relationship with them or the sin is hurting their relationship with others. And we bring it to them saying, we want to see you repent and get restored because we know that this is best for you and we love you. It's not, oh, I just want to see God's judgment upon you right now because of that horrible thing that you did. When done right, confronting sin is done usually with tears and a broken heart, not with anger and condemnation. And if you're coming with anger and condemnation, then you don't have the proper heart in it. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, 
Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Notice the challenge here. If you see someone else in sin, how should you approach them? How should you seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, not a spirit of pride? I need to come gently to you, humbly to you, and I need to recognize something. Notice where else we're told, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Hey, consider that you are also a sinner that is tempted by sin. And before you come and say, oh, how dare you? And you, know, you deserve this and that, that we would come with a spirit of gentleness. Come in love. Come seeking them to repent and be reconciled. So all of these religious leaders who have brought this woman, they've been convicted of their sin and each one has left. And now it's just Jesus and this woman and this crowd that's been just like, wow, this is a, an amazing thing that we've been watching today. And notice now how Jesus responds, because this is the most important part of this whole story of how now he responds to this woman. Verses 10 and 11. When Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So when Jesus raised himself up from writing on the ground, he looks around, all those religious leaders who brought this woman, they're now gone. And he says to them, where are your accusers? Where are those witnesses? Where are those ones who, who caught you in this act? Have they all gone? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And notice what Jesus says to her. These are very powerful words. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's interesting, according to what Jesus has said, he had the right, the perfect right, to throw stones. He throws out to the religious leaders, he among you who is without sin, throw a stone at her first. Well, guess what? Jesus was without sin. He could have said, hey, sorry, they left, but I'm without sin, and I'm going to end this. I'm going to take care of this. He had the perfect right. She's a guilty adulteress. And according to the law, she deserves to be stoned. Jesus, in his sinlessness, was by far the one most worthy of bringing that judgment upon her. But you know what? Jesus chooses not to condemn her. And some people say, well, wait a second. How is it that Jesus gets away with this? How is it that he can choose not to condemn her when the law says that her just punishment is death? I mean, isn't the wages of sin death? I mean, how is it that Jesus can do this? Well, Paul explains how Jesus cannot condemn this guilty, sinful woman in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus, who was sinless, took our sin upon himself so that we could take his sinless righteousness upon ourselves. You know, what this verse is saying is that God would treat Jesus like he lived the life of this adulterous, sinful woman so that he could treat this adulterous, sinful woman like she lived the sinless life of Jesus. There is a, a, a switch that's taking place here, and this is true for you and I as well, that God treated Jesus like he lived your sinless life, sinful life, sorry, so that he could treat you like you lived Jesus' sinless life. So Jesus isn't blowing off this woman's sin. He's like, oh, whatever, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. That, that's not what's going on at all here. 
When he says, I don't condemn you, he's saying that in light of the truth of what he's about to do because he knows I'm going to go to the cross for this sin. I'm going to pay the price for this sin. And because I'm going to deal with this sin and take the judgment of this sin on myself, I am now able to say, I'm not going to condemn you for what you've done. You can look at it this way. Jesus took the rock that this adulterous woman deserved to die by and chose to throw it at himself. Chose to stone himself to death so that she would be free and not have to suffer the consequence that she deserves. This is why Jesus is able to say, neither do I condemn you. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible dealing with condemnation is Romans 8.1. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, one wonderful thing happens. We're told that we are now in Christ, that there is a positional change, that before you accepted Jesus, guess what you were in? You were in your sin, and you were in the consequences of those sin, which ultimately is God's wrath in hell for eternity. But when you accept Jesus, you go from being in sin to in Christ, and all that goes with it, the sinlessness of his perfect life and what he did on the cross. And so because of that positional change, we can go from being Condemned like we should be to there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, this is one of the most important truths in the Bible that we need to understand. We are not condemned. We will not be condemned and we cannot be condemned if we have placed our faith in Jesus and now are in Christ. Ray Pritchard said this about no condemnation. Do you know what that means? You can struggle, but you're not condemned. You can fall, but you're not condemned. You can trip, but you're not condemned. You can stray off the path, but you're not condemned because God has said He will not condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus saved you, He didn't say He would take away all your problems. No, but He did say this, in your problems, there's no condemnation. In your struggles, there is no condemnation. In your failure, there is no condemnation. In your goings astray, there is no condemnation. This is such a wonderful truth that when we're in Christ and we're all sinners, we can all relate to the reality of this woman in her sin because we are all sinners, but yet there's no condemnation for those who have accepted Jesus. You know, I think something so important to remember about Jesus is why did he come? If you remember back in John chapter 3, we have the most famous and quoted verse there is, John 3, 16. But you know what? There's two verses after it that give a clear understanding of not only why Jesus came, but what he didn't come to do. John 3, 16 through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, often people, they just quote John 3.16, and you know what, I understand why. It's just a powerful, wonderful verse. But you know what, verses 17 and 18 are also very important as well. Verse 17 tells us, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. 
That's not why he was here. Oh, I just want to condemn people. I love to condemn people. And I'm coming to that earth to condemn people. He did not come to this world to condemn people. Why did he come? That the world through him might be saved. Please note that purpose. Because so many Christians seem to miss this vital purpose of why Jesus came to this earth. And they treat the world as if God's desire is to condemn them. And if their calling and that their mission from God is also to condemn the world. You know, God's purpose isn't to condemn the world. And guess what? He doesn't call us, his followers, to condemn the world either. God didn't condemn the world for his sin. He came to save it from its sins. And guess what? He's called us to declare the gospel good news of that reality. That you know what? God didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He sacrificed his life for you. We're supposed to communicate the good news of the gospel message, what Jesus has done to save people from being condemned. That's the role. That's what we're called to do, not to be the condemners. So verse 17 shares this glorious truth. God didn't condemn the world. That's not why he came. He came to save the world, that those who place their uh, trust in Jesus would be saved. But you know what? Verse 18, it it gives us a sobering truth. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God's heart is that he wouldn't have to condemn anyone. He's done everything possible to make it so that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. He gave his own life so that we wouldn't have to be condemned. But you know, it doesn't force us to accept that. It doesn't force us to accept the free gift of what he's offered. If someone wants to choose not to accept that gift, choose not to accept to put their trust in Jesus, then not only are they rejecting Jesus, but they are accepting the condemnation for their sin. Because the only way to escape it is to accept what God did on your behalf, that he took the condemnation so that you don't have to. But if you want to reject that way, you want to reject that gift, then ultimately there will be condemnation from God. Not because he wants to, not because he looks forward to it, not because he just can't wait to cast people into hell. No, he did everything to make it possible for you not to receive condemnation. But if you reject that, he is a God who is just, and he is a God who must condemn sin. And if it's not going to be on Christ, then it's going to be on you. And it'll be on you for eternity in hell. Now notice Jesus, he doesn't just say the wonderful words of, hey, neither do I condemn you. But he goes on to say something else very important. Go and sin no more. Go now and leave your life of sin behind. Notice the fact that Jesus doesn't condemn her sin does not mean that Jesus condones her sin. And this is another one of these false things that people look and say, oh, see, Jesus didn't have an issue with sin. Look, he says, I don't condemn you. Well, just because he doesn't uh, condemn her doesn't mean he's like, I condone it. Because right after he says, stop doing it. Go and sin no more. He calls it out for what it is. What you've been doing is sinful. You need to change your life. You need to change the way in which you're living. And so he's not condoning her life. He's not condoning her sin. He's wanting to see a change. And this is the wonderful truth. We see these two truths in the gospel. When you put your trust in Jesus, not only are you forgiven, and what we use is word justified, just as if we've never sinned. That's how God sees us. It's a wonderful reality that happens the moment we place our faith in Jesus. But also at that moment, we start a process 
called sanctification. A process where God's desiring to help us sin less and less and become more and more like Jesus. We never get to a point where we're sinless. We never get to a point where we're exactly like Jesus. But the desire of God is that from now to the day we die, we would continue to grow to become more like Jesus. And that's ultimately what God, Jesus starts with with this woman of, hey, I don't condemn you. You're forgiven, but go and sin no more. I want to see this change happen in your life. So this encounter that Jesus has with this sinful woman reveals to us what God's heart is and what God's role is when it comes to condemning sinners. It also reveals to us what our heart should be and what our role is when it comes to condemning sinners. You see, God's heart is that every sinner would be saved, that none would be condemned. And we know this. The Bible clearly says it. It says, God desires that none should perish because of condemnation, but that all would come to repentance in Jesus so they could escape condemnation. That's the heart of God. That's what he wants. He doesn't want anyone to be condemned. He doesn't want anyone to have to go to hell. That's what his desire is. He, he knows it's not going to be everyone's going to choose what he's done, but that is his heart for people. And he you know what? He's done everything to make it possible. Everything for it to be possible for us to be forgiven of our sins, for us not to be condemned of our sin. He gave his own life on a cross. He took the judgment that we deserve on himself so that we could escape that. But God doesn't force that upon us. If we want to reject it, then his role will be a role of condemnation. A role where he says, you know what? I am a just God. I must punish sin. I've given you a way to escape that. But if you choose not to, well, my role will be to bring condemnation. In my role, I've done everything to keep it from happening because I don't want you to be condemned. I don't want to cast you into hell. That is not my heart. That is not my desire. But if you reject the one way to escape it through what I've done for you, then God's role is a role of condemnation, but not one that he loves, not one that he wants, not one he's sitting on the throne just, oh, I can't wait till they sin so I can strike them down. That's not God's heart at all. And our heart towards sinners should be just like God's heart. We should want every sinner to be saved. We should want every person to escape the condemnation that they deserve. And I'm sure there's people that maybe you can think of through your life where that's really not your heart for them at all. Oh, I really hope that they get what they deserve. After what they did to me, after what they did here or there, you know, that really, I don't want to see them saved. I want to see them judged. I don't want to see them, you know, receive forgiveness. I want to see them receive condemnation. That is not the heart of God. That is not what God sees in you. And you should be very grateful. I'm very grateful that he says, you know what? All the things that you've done, I'm still willing to forgive you. I love you that much. I don't want to condemn you. And that should be the way in which we have a heart towards those who are sinning. And some sinning in very horrible ways, but yet that we would want to see them saved, not condemned. Our role is to share the good news of the gospel, to share with people how they can escape the judgment of God. Our role is not to condemn. To bring judgment upon people, that's God's role. He's going to do it. The great right throne judgment is going to happen. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. He's going to judge all those who reject him. We don't have to try to take that role on ourselves. That's something that he will do. Our role is to try to help people escape it by sharing the gospel, by sharing what God has done for them. Something else important that we learn from Jesus' encounter with this sinful woman is the safest 
and best place for a sinful person to go is Jesus. You know, I think it's interesting. The religious leaders meant this for evil. They just wanted to destroy this woman. She was just a pawn in their schemes. But you know what? God meant it for good. The best thing that could happen to this woman was that she was brought before Jesus. Was that she was brought to a place where now her sins could be dealt with before him. That he wouldn't condemn her. That he would confront her. That he would tell her to sin no more. You know, this was the best thing that could happen to her. I'm sure she thought this is the worst thing ever. This is the most shameful thing ever. This is the most embarrassing thing ever. But being brought before Jesus was actually by far the best thing for her. He will never condemn us when we put our trust in him. And he also won't leave us in our brokenness. He won't leave us in our sin. He says, no, I want to change you. I want to help you grow. Ken Geyer wrote a wonderful prayer in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior. And as I read the the words of this prayer, I thought, you know what, this is so fitting for the challenge of these 11 verses that we've looked at this morning. So I just want to finish by reading this prayer. And I want to encourage you just to think of the words and that you could just make this your own. Because what he prays, I think all of us should pray in light of what we've just been challenged with this morning. He says this, I confess with shame that there are times I have stood in the midst condemned, and there are times I have stood in the crowd condemning. There are times my heart has been filled with adultery, and there are times my hands have been filled with stones. Forgive me for a heart that is so prone to wander, so quick to forget my vows to you. Forgive me too for my eagerness in bringing you the sins of others and my reluctance in bringing you my own sin. Forgive me for the times I have stood smugly, pharisaic, measured out judgment to others. Others I am not qualified to judge. Others who you, though qualified, refuse to. Help me to be more like you, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help me to live not by law, but by grace, by the spirit of compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. Give me, I pray, the pierced conscience of the older ones in regard to the stumblings of others, so my hands may be first to drop their stones and my feet first to leave the circle of self-righteousness. Thank you for those sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Words that flow so freely from your lips, words that I have heard so often when I have stumbled. And in the strength of those unmerited words, help me to go my way and sin no more. Let's pray.